Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Susan Schneider-Williams, and I'm a Bay Area artist, advocate, and founder of Susan Schneider Fine Art. Before we get started, a few housekeeping reminders. Tonight's program is being recorded, so we kindly ask that you silence your cell phones for the duration of the program. Also, if you have any questions for our guest speakers, please fill them out on the question cards that were on your seats, or if you are joining us online through the YouTube chat. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Susan Magsamon and Ivy Ross, best-selling authors of Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us. Susan Magsamon is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab, Center for Applied Neuroesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she is also a faculty member. Susan also co-directs NeuroArts Blueprint and is joining us remotely from the East Coast this evening. Ivy Ross is the Vice President of Design for Hardware and Hardware Product Area at Google, where she leads a team that has won over 225 design awards. She is a National Endowment for Arts grant recipient and was ninth on Fast Company's list of the 100 most creative people in business in 2019. Susan and Ivy's book, Your Brain on Art, covers groundbreaking science and explains how the arts and and aesthetics have the power to transform traditional medicine and to build stronger and healthier communities. Susan and Ivy, welcome. Thank Thank you, Susan. We have two Susans here. Good to see you. Thank you, Susan. Susan Susan two, Susan one. Um, So I just wanted to uh, say a little bit about my friend Susan Schneider-Williams, who, as she mentioned, is an artist and advocate, and she was a graduate of California College of the Arts, and she started as a graphic designer for 25 years. And then in 2006, she began transitioning her business to the current Susan Schneider Fine Art um, and into the career of her dreams, painting. Um, you know, she mentor, mentors students, teaches painting, and curates shows for fellow artists that greatly enriched her early painting career. She's exhibited numerous shows, group and solo shows, and her paintings are in private collection. The last fact here is that entering the world of advocacy was not part of Susan's plan. In 2014, when her husband Robin Williams died from Lewy body disease, she set out to raise awareness about this devastating yet little-known brain disease. She now splits her time between being an artist and an advocate, each pathway always informing the other. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you, I likewise. <laughs> So, Your Brain on Art. I love the title of this book. And I have to say I love the tagline just as much. How the arts transform us. So, to set the table a little bit here, let's define art. Most people might think initially it's the visual arts, but it's a whole lot more than that. Susan and Ivy are talking about music, dance, writing, of course, visual arts, and architecture, sculpture, it's really those modalities that allow us to creatively express. Right. 
Perfect. So there's a paragraph near the back of the book, um, bottom of 230, that I think really encapsulates what you will find in the book um, in a simple format here, or simple form. So throughout this book, we've shared some of the mechanisms, neurotransmitters, neural circuits, and networks that are activated in you by arts and aesthetics. We've shown you how the arts can be used to ease physical and mental distress, to learn more deeply, to galvanize a community, and to help you flourish. The arts have been ushering in profound individual and societal change over millennia because they quite literally change our biology, psychology, and behavior in undeniable and profound ways. And also, I would add, our brains in really big ways. So um, this book is a tremendous breath of fresh air for me personally as an artist. My father is a doctor, and I never felt like he understood me. <laughs> and I never really understood him. And, um, but the course of our lifetime, the, over the arc of our um, lives together thus far, he's 91, is, has been this coming to understand each other's um, work and, and value and appreciate it. And I, what I'm excited about is to sit down with him and go over my bazillion notes from this book and say, Dad, guess what? <laughs> this is what the arts are doing to my brain. And this is been a good thing. <laughs> so anyway, um, to kick it off with questions for you guys, why do the arts matter? And, and I would say, what prompted you to write this book, to spend four years of your life, at least, um, in the labor of making this book come, come to be? Yeah, so Susan had reached out to me in 2017. It was a cold call on LinkedIn. And I was, you know, swiping left, and then all of a sudden I see the Arts and Mind Lab. What is that? Swiped right, because I was an art major and psychology minor, and those are my two favorite things, the arts and the mind. And what started out as a 30-minute call um, turned into a three-hour call, and Susan explained that in the last 20 years, since science has allowed us to get into our brains, she can now science can prove what a lot of us creatives and artists have known intuitively, that the arts um, heal and transform us. And at first when she told me that, I said, I know that. And I said, oh my God, but the masses don't know that. And it's amazing um, how important it is when you set the field with scientific facts, how people will listen and take in the information. Um, so Susan and I held a salon in my home between artists and neuroscientists. And at the end of that afternoon, she looked at me and said, I've always wanted to write a book on this, and do you want to do it with me? And I said, this is the book I've been waiting for. Wow. But, um, and it was during COVID. It was one of the gifts of COVID because we wrote it during COVID because I usually commute to Google, and that was two hours each way. So for those years of COVID, uh, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., we would work on the book. Uh, but we really believe, and we didn't realize how the timing was going to be perfect for this book because we didn't know exactly when it was going to come out. But the reason we felt so driven to write it was really because we've been optimizing for productivity since the Industrial Revolution and efficiency and really pushed a lot of these arts aside in service of productivity. 
And, you know, thinking that that would make us happy, and it hasn't. I mean, mental health is, you know, surpassing physical health issues. And we really wanted to give the credibility to the arts that it deserves, because it's our birthright. Um, after speaking to E.O. Wilson, evolutionary biologist, I mean, he made it clear that it is our birthright. And then when you, you go back in the book, we've interviewed 100 people, including a Maori tribesman, Hopi Indian, and really talked about the indigenous cultures. You know, they didn't have a word for art because it was the way they lived. You didn't have to call it art. Singing, dancing, storytelling, mm -hmm. painting, that was our culture. And so Susan and I feel strongly that we need to be whole people. It's not one or the other, it's both and. You know, we need the cognitive brain and we need the creative expression uh, brain. And a lot of people were creative and artists when they were younger, but someone shut them down because they said, you're not very good at it, or you'll never make a living at it. Not realizing that we are wired physiologically to be doing some of these arts. And so by shutting it down, we are suppressing something very important. To, and to further that point, I mean, what I, what's so evident in this book is that everybody is an artist. It, it, there, you guys bring to light the fact that if you doodle for 20 minutes, you're going to change your cortisol levels. Absolutely. You and, don't, yeah. and then if you hum, it's a whole other thing. And then I was thinking today, what if you doodle and hum at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> bing, 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 major points. <laughs> right, right. Like that's like, hook me up to FR, <laughs> F functional MRI. You yeah. know, what's going on? But that is, I think what's so beautiful about this book is it's, in a way, um, I mean, one of my, takeaways at the end of all of this is that each of us are really our own instrument of the arts because of the way you tie in scientifically with those hundred plus people you've reached out to that are in this book and the studies they're doing that this is who we are whether it's um light sound perception spatial you know what we feel when we enter a space all these things are literally changing our physiology and our, our brain chemistry and mm -hmm. Two, also, you know, as, as I uh, read about articles about the arts being cut in schools, I mean, that if I had, if I had hair on my back, the hair would be up on my back. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is well, just the, so wrong. <laughs> no, the, it's so wrong, so wrong. I mean, but the exciting thing is, as I like to say to Susan, you know, science is in part what pushed it out of schools because Sputnik came in and the schools said, okay, science and math, science and math, we have to win here. But now science is proving that we made a big oh, mistake and it's coming back in. And Susan and I spoke at the Getty Museum to 500 school superintendents about three weeks ago because California was funded, I think it was a billion dollars, right, Susan, back mm -hmm. to hire a art teacher in every single school in California. So we spoke to the uh, school superintendents because it's really important that they understand the neurobiology of the art. It's not just hire an art teacher and check a box, but it needs to be woven throughout. It's a mindset that needs to come throughout the program. And, and again, what the book proves or what you guys have shown from the science you've brought to this book is there is data out there that shows your kids will score better on their SAT your math kids will score better on their SATs if they're also doing art yep they are more successful better executive better learning function. better retention all of it yep. so that's I was talking to my friend on the way over here that you can't just leave half the brain out yeah you can't 
that that's like that's not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. So this proves the why. Um, yeah, I think the why and the what to jump in. Um, and so first of all, Susan, it's so great to see you and always to be with Ivy. So thank you for for moderating this, and also thanks to the Commonwealth Club. It's very exciting to to be part of this conversation, and it's really cool to watch you too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to. Um, some of these core neural arts principles that undergird, I think, why all of these amazing accomplishments in learning, in mental health, in physical health, in flourishing, community building, how we build our companies and think about innovation is possible for just a moment. And that's really ties back to neuroplasticity and the fact that just where you're sitting right now and the, the, the light, the temperature, the textures, all of these sensorial experiences that are around you, um, what you're looking at, um, what you may be smelling, all of the ways we bring the world in um, are so amazing. And these sensorial mechanisms allow us to do that. And they tap into um, 100 billion neurons that you're born with that are connecting to each other, creating these neural pathways. And so without this ability to create very strong neural pathways through these sensory experiences that turn out to be highly salient through arts and aesthetic experiences or things that really matter to us, we wouldn't grow and learn and memorize and recall information the way that the way that we do and that's super important and i think somehow along the the journey of humanity we've forgotten that the arts are not a nice to have they're not even um something that you might occasionally do they are how we bring in the world they're how we grow they're how we learn and when we understand that everything else falls out from that and so I think coming back to our senses, literally, and understanding that um, this is how we're wired, as Ivy said, it's our birthright, really is a game changer. And then along the lines of that, we know that enriched environments are so important um, in terms of how we create these spaces that we move in and out of, whether it's home, work, school, um, in the community. And also how our brains really are so unique, as you said, we are really, truly individually unique pieces of art that are creating art and beholding art all the time. Um, and that's in part, and maybe we'll talk about this a little later, is through this idea around the default mode network, which we're only just now really beginning to understand some of the parts of the brain that make us so uniquely ourselves. Okay. The default mode network. I'm going to put a pin in that for later. I freaking want to ask you guys about that. That is very cool. But First, okay, clearly Johns Hopkins. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and there were a lot of things you just said, Susan, that are areas that are, are um, frequently touched on throughout the book. It's, and that is the enriched environments and the experiment that Diamond did early on in the Marion 50s. Marion Diamond. Right, and with the rats, a couple of rats. God bless the rats. <laughs> They've helped us a lot. Uh, and and I and um, maybe let's maybe let's just back up a little bit and define for everybody what an enriched environment means and also saliency the value of saliency or the cocktail party effect. Yeah. Why is, don't you talk about that, Susan? And I'll talk about how we what we did down in Milan to show people how that sure. works. So um, 
So the enriched environment work is something that actually began in the 60s. Marion Diamond was a neuroscientist. Um, sort of a little tip is that, uh, or a little tidbit, is Marion Diamond actually was one of the people that was given parts of Einstein's brain to analyze after his death, to, because we really were so fascinated by that. But in her earlier years, she was um, very interested in this idea around neuroplasticity. And she created an experiment with three different uh, variables. One was a space that was highly enriched, where rats could play, do not have novel experiences. She would switch out the toys. Um, there was lots of different things for the for the the rats to do. Um, the the second Hot tub. experience, <laughs> I know, right? Like it's sort of like a Barbie house. Uh, and then the second was um, sort of just a traditional kind of normal space. But the third was an impoverished environment where there really was very little to stimulate the rat or to um, find curiosity around. And after just two weeks, um, they were able to um, sacrifice the rats and see that the rats that had enriched environments actually grew brain mass, cerebral cortex, by 6%. So their brains grew, literally physically, structurally grew, which is amazing. Um, the rats that had sort of the, the status quo stayed about the same. But importantly, the rats that had an impoverished um, community actually lost brain mass. And so that was pretty ex important. And it began to sort of explain this idea around she could see that there were more synaptic connections or more neural pathways for these enriched environments and less for the rats that had the impoverished environments. And so cut you know, forward to where we are now, whereas Ivy said, we now have non-invasive ways to get inside the brain. And we are able to see this in, in humans, how these different kinds of environments shape our brains. And so one of the uh, things that we've talked about in the learning chapter is that a great example of an enriched environment is when kids are playing musical instruments together with each other and they're serve and return, they're using um, multimodal systems, they're, they're using motor cortex, they're using auditory systems, they're having to use visual cues, they're using a lot of different things that would be considered enriched environments. When you look at children's brains in fMRIs, you see that their brain masses actually also increase. They have greater myelination, which is the coding on the neural pathways that basically allows these circuits to work faster and better. And they also make more synaptic connections. So we know that enriched environments for us are also incredibly important. And we also know that people suffer and have more difficulty when we don't have those kinds of enriched environments. And you can create them and find them in lots of different ways. Uh, saliency is uh, really sort of an extraordinary phenomena. So we have so much information that's coming at us all the time, um, sensorial information, that we couldn't possibly process it all. And so our brains are so smart. It, they make decisions about what's important to us, what's emotionally relevant, and what's practical. And those are the th kinds of information that comes into our bodies that we, are, we really do process. And that's considered salient experiences. And so um, in our brains, there's now um, beginning to understand something that's called the, the saliency network, which is where the default mode network sits. It's in that same part of the brain. And it's where we 
think about, um, we bring information in all the time, um, but when our brains are quiet, when we're not bringing information in, it's that salient information, it's when our brains really begin to process information. And that's when the default mode network goes to work. Um, but the, this cocktail party effect is interesting, and we've all had this happen to us where we're in a room and there's a lot going on and, you know, we're kind of trying to figure it out. And somebody will come up to us and say, hey, Ivy, I haven't seen you for a really long time, and it's an old friend. And Ivy will just zone in on that person like nobody else is in the room. That's a salient experience, an example where nothing, this is the most important thing. So all the other noise goes away, and the signal is on the thing that's most emotionally or relevantly important to her. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, the default, default mode network has taught us it's really important to take pause, you know, because that's when we're, we're taking in so much information and stimuli these days that... It's like the space between the notes, and you need that pause to actually then make these connections, these neurosynapse connections. But I want to um, build on what Susan was talking about with Marion Diamond. What we did is fast forward in, I think it was 2018 or 19, uh, my design team at Google, Susan's lab, we collaborated on really the first time we gave the public uh, an actual experience of what neuroaesthetics is, which is how the art and aesthetics are changed, you know, change your brain and body. And so we had three rooms, uh, but they were living room, dining room. We collaborated with an uh, architect, Suchi Reddy, and she designed um, the same living room, dining room, but with three very different aesthetic things, different colors, different textures, different music, different smell, um, different art. And when people came through the experience, we gave them a wristband that was taking in different real-time physiological measurements. And we asked them to be in each room, no devices, just feel, it was called the space for being, because the idea was to just be in each room with all of these different colors, textures, smells, sounds. And then they would spend five minutes, about 10 people at a time, the next room, the next room. And then they would go and we, we would remove the band. And at first we'd say, which room did you like the best? Because we were trying to prove a point here. And they might say, oh, the first room, because I love the color couch, or the third room, because it reminded me of my childhood you know, living room. And then we would take the band off, um, download the data, and through an algorithm, we were able to show them visually in which room their bodies felt the most at ease, not their mind. And in over, Susan and I said, this will be a problem if at least over 50% there is a mismatch. And sure enough, luckily 58%, it was different what their mind, cognitive mind thought than what their body was actually feeling. And so people were like, how could that be? And then we explained, well, your body is feeling all the time, and we forget that. And Susan can give you the data, how many sensors are where, but it's extraordinary, because we have been so focused on, and you might, your mind may like something because you've seen it in the magazine, but it doesn't mean your body feels good in it. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to actually show them, because we had, it was like a clock, a beautiful ink blot, almost drawing of how their body was reacting as they were walking through the room. Maybe 
smelling the flower or touching the painting. And they were like, oh my God, that's the moment, you know, that I touched the texture on the couch. So, you know, the press was like, oh, are you going to do a band at Google to tell people, you know, that people will wear? I said, I don't want to be in the world where we have to wear something to tell us how we feel. Mm -hmm. The message was, <laughs> you know, the message was, we are feeling all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why this principle of neuroaesthetics is so important. And we have agency over what we surround ourselves, but we forget sometimes because we're in our heads that our sensory systems are taking in information and feeling all the time. And there's a great quote we have in the book by Julie Bolte-Taylor, um, who says, you know, we, I think it's, we think we are thinking creatures who have learned to feel, but we're actually feeling creatures who think. Right. And when you really absorb that, and she's absolutely right, we are first designed as feeling creatures. And it's only recently that we've started to have this other part of our brain. Uh, but I think we walk around thinking that we're thinking creatures that once in a while feel, and sometimes we're told not to feel, especially mm. as children, right? Mm. Um, but the reality is we are designed as feeling creatures first that have learned to think. And once we heard that, we start, you, know, you start walking around with the feeling first, and it's fascinating. And when you put that aside, when you really aren't feeling, you're really not living your fullest life, as Ivy was saying earlier. And I think this idea of what gives you, what's, gives you meaning, what gives you purpose, what's your individualized experience of what it means to be most fully present and radically present shifts. And uh, we, in the book, we talk about the aesthetic mindset and how you can really begin to create that intention for yourself by really moving into these attributes that allow you to be more curious, um, to be more, have more playful exploration. So um, playful ex exploration really is around um, exploring things without judgment and, and really allowing yourself to have open-ended experiences. And a lot of us don't do that um, because we're so operationalized and, and so task-oriented. And then to really explore experience these sensorial experiences and mechanisms that are, you know, Ivy mentioned, you know, you have over 3,000 touch receptors in just every single fingertip, over 4 million touch receptors along your, in your skin. So the ability for us to bring in the, these kinds of amazing things like temperature and, and, and texture is extraordinary just as one sensory system. And then the last is really making and beholding and being intentional about doing that. And so we're so at a brink in, I think in the world where we want to experience that more. And what space for being really showed us, showed us was that we've kind of fallen asleep. We've kind of forgotten what the capacity of the human potential is. And it's extremely important right now that we reawaken that, you know, as technology will start to take over, take off of our plate, some of the rational things, mm. we really have to go deep into what is it to be a human and how do we amplify those things and be more imaginative uh, and creative. But what Susan mentioned about, um, it's not just being a maker uh, with no judgment, right? Uh, it's also the beholding, meaning just witnessing, going to a museum. In fact, doctors in London and Canada are writing prescriptions for people to go to museums because you need to 
make these new neural connections by being confronted, looking at new things right. that maybe you haven't seen before, contemplating a painting. Right. I want to go back for a moment to when you were talking about the space you guys designed and people's, uh, that was a very interesting study in that people in more than half thought they liked something and in fact their body didn't. And I think there's, there, what came to mind when I was reading that was we can feel, just because something feels familiar doesn't mean we like it. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of, and what you're talking about, Susan, with these senses, there's, there, you illuminate a little bit that there's some science going on. There's one science um, project that's basically saying we, we might actually have 53 senses, mm-hmm. which goes to the point of, Susan, all the nerve endings, everything you just talked about, that we are, we've been cutting ourselves short. Absolutely. I mean, we, we mm-hmm. can do and take in so much more. And, and the thing is about the taking in part, it's not just for kicks. It's like, oh, oh, no, it actually changes our brain chemistry. It, it develops more neuroplasticity. It develops this connection with the enriched environment, this feedback. And so we are literally changing ourselves. That's, you know, you get into the structure of this book is excellent, by the way. <laughs> Thank and you. I'm not a book reviewer, but, but I really <laughs> liked it. And, and, I, and I think, you know, because you get into, well, how can this be used for medicinal purposes for therapeutics and um and it really maps out that these these things such as music change for parkinson's patients you know it helps them move it literally so there it is it's affecting the substantia nigra releasing more dopamine and they're able to move better absolutely and then there's extraordinary things i i've studied sound and light for 40 years and then an mit professor is now has discovered um, that 40 hertz, a certain frequency, Gamma. and a combination of lights will um, ignite the cleansing of the plaque off the brain. And it's helping patients with dementia. I mean, this is huge. That one is huge. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thought that something as, you know, sound and light, which are art forms, right. could ignite um, a cleansing of the, of the plaque, I mean, elimination or helping it, I, aid is just phenomenal. I mean, think about the studies that have gone into, like, how can we get the microglia to clean out the garbage? <laughs> that's, right. you know, right. light and sound, baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty simple. And she says it in there. I think you guys indicate that, like, could it actually be that simple? And, you know, it's, um, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, well, it's all so of this, elegant. like you said, is nourishment. I mean, taking in these yeah. aesthetics it's the dirt. We've been like starving ourselves. We right. put that aside. And back to what you said in the, initially, how I, when we we're talking in the green room, I don't know if you mentioned out here about back around um, industrial revolution when we or when we started to become more um, transactional mm-hmm. as opposed to what you guys say in the book, tra- tra- the good part, not transactional, but become more um, transformational. 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 Yeah. 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 And, and also the individual aspect of this, I think, is really, you know, just as I was, you talked on this a little bit now about this is, it's very individual. The people's experience when they'd walk through these enriched environments and their reaction to it has a lot to how they were brought up culturally, where they're from. So I was thinking towards the end of the book, gee, well, we have, we have targeted, um, we're in cancer now, in some cancers, we're able to do gene-targeted therapy. 
you know, how about someday very targeted arts therapy, you know, that are like science, that are like prescriptions, that are very targeted to the individual? Oh, absolutely. I think we're, we're going to be coming to that in terms of like prescribing exactly dose and dosage. Correct, Susan? I mean, that is something yeah. that we think the future is. I know one of my um, sound teachers I study with was breaking up cancer cells under a microscope using different frequencies. And another teacher has a vision that someday we're going to take the periodic table of elements and create songs, you know, because the different elements, magnesium, calcium, all have formulas which are mathematical equations which can equal music. So imagine someday medicine is um, a unique song written for you that puts the frequencies back in your body that we need. I mean, that's a world I that's awesome. I can't wait. That's awesome. <laughs> and I you think, go, you go. Okay. <laughs> that, I think there are also things that are happening now that lead us towards that. You know, when you sing a song, an autobiographical song with someone that has dementia, they most often sing back, right? right? And that's a form of personalized medicine, that's a form of personalized singing. You can see um, there's been some beautiful work um, when um, previous dancers have heard things like Swan Lake and they begin to move in their wheelchairs. You know, that is a right. form of personalized medicine. You mentioned um, things like uh, dancing or um for Parkinson's. And, you know, there are certain kinds of music that Parkinson's patients just dance better to individually. And some of it's tied to culture, but some of it ties to sort of um, their own um, sense of rhythm and movement. Um, and it's interesting, Parkinson's is one of those um, diseases that dose and dosage actually turns out to really matter. Um, during COVID, people that were dancing used to have to go to a studio, but during COVID, they could dance on Zoom, so they could dance just like this. And they started dancing um, more frequently and for longer periods of time. And they started to see that um, they had better gait, better sleep, better mood um, as they danced more. And so we're starting to get a calibrate this idea of dose and dosage for individuals much like the way we do dose and dosage for medications. And I think it makes sense to think that, you know, medication wears off and you need to take it again. An art activity may last a certain amount of time and you need to do it again. So this idea of practice and having routines for different kinds of art experiences, depending upon what you're using it for, I think is a really very realistic model for what's now being called arts on prescription. And so doctors are prescribing it as I as Ivy said, we're also seeing pediatricians prescribe things like play and theater and mime and 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 open-ended exploration, um, as opposed to or sometimes with other kinds of prescriptions. Um, and so it's 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 a yes and opportunity for how you and bring the arts and aesthetics into your life, no matter what part of your life you're bringing them into. You know, and I think I don't know. I, I it's. I feel like we've just, we have a lot of catching up to do on <laughs> bridging the gap. And that's what this book does. Bridging the gap and understanding, okay, great. You're going to go dance. You're going to, you know, what? What is, how is that going to change? How does that actually change things? And this book be makes it clear scientifically what is happening between that motion, what regions of the brain get stimulated, which set off a chain reaction down some neural pathway with some chemical neurotransmitter being released, 
Like mm-hmm. the dopamine, for example, which is not, which is one of the things Parkinson's patients start missing out on a lot. And so these things get stimulated. So certain neuropathways and regions get affected by different things, music, humming, doodling, like yeah. doing clay. I, my oldest son is a ceramicist. Now I understand why he likes it so much. Serotonin mm-hmm. is released. Yeah. Right? Especially and when oxytocin, you're doing things like right? and oxytocin, yep. like all the good yep. stuff. And clay or things like knitting when you're working with both hands is particularly great because it's like the conscious and unconscious is, is uh, working together. But you know, it's 15 minutes of doing an art activity will lower cortisol. So it's amazing to know that, that if you're ever stressed, just 15 minutes. And again, you don't have to be proficient at it. Um, just that activity and we also learned that, I mean, art is actually the highest form of meditation. So for those who can't meditate because they say, I can't sit there and do nothing, well, color, sketch, draw, sing, dance. I mean, try watercolors. I mean, that is the highest form of meditation because it gets you out of your cognitive mind and into this, you're focused on something you know very specific that, is mirroring back yourself to and, you. and getting and perhaps getting into as you guys talk about peak performance and flow and into the zone and what starts to happen there to the different brain waves that get more emphasis right i don't know if it's i don't know which one it is but it's <laughs> it's a good one yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we talk about flourishing right in the in in how you really can build that muscle and that there's six attributes that we think about for flourishing, including curiosity, awe and wonder. Um, this capacity for wonder, I think, is something that we've we've sort of lost also along the way in in trans in this transactional world that we live in. Rituals and traditions turn out to be really helpful in starting to build this this flourishing muscle. And so, the more we really in, engage in these kinds of activities, thinking about what really is creativity? And um, there's a great study in the book by Charles Lim, who is um, now at UCSF, and he is an otolaryngologist who um, is very interested in improvisation. And he started initially with a study where he took jazz musicians and put them in an fMRI with a plastic piano, and he had them play a rehearsed piece, and then he had them play an improv piece. And what he was able to see is that in the prefrontal cortex, uh, when you were playing a piece that was rehearsed, there was a part of the brain that was monitoring that, that was watching to make sure that you were doing it as a master. But when you improv, that part of the brain turned off so that you were able to really flow, move into that flow state, move into that sort of timelessness. And it's sort of a fascinating a knowledge to understand that this this kind of flow state really means you have to stop one kind of uh, mechanism or operation in order to really let that happen. So self-monitoring, we mentioned judgment, this idea of just letting yourself do something without judgment. The other thing he found was that um, when he repeated this work with other kinds of artists, so with caricaturists and and portraits, with spoken word and read poetry, um, with uh, um, other kind comedians, 
Um, he also he found the same part of the brain turned on and off mm -hmm. when you were looking at improvisation. And so it's something that you can learn to do. And I think that's also, you know, with IQ, IQ is a fixed point, right? It's what you can recall. But with something like flourishing, where you can build your human potential, that's all about what you do. And I think there's real hope in that also. Yeah. That okay. I'm going to go back to the default mode network because I'm just curious with what you just described, Susan. What is the default mode network doing at that time? Is that it, my what I got from the book about that was that that is our sense of self, and and so what's happening when we're letting go of the prefrontal cortex, the rehearsed, and we're moving into that flow state, the more spontaneous, improvisational state? Is the, what's the default mode network doing? Sleeping or is it? <laughs> have anything to do with it? Yeah, so so, so I, I, Pat Metheny is a great jazz musician, and we were talking with him about this, you know, when you're improving, what's going on? Like, what are you thinking? What are you, what, what's going on in your mind? And he said, absolutely nothing. He said, I am 100% in. All I am is in the moment, and nothing else is around me. Nothing else matters. And so that's not when the default mode network is working. The default mode network is when you are at rest, as Ivy says. We need these spaces between okay. the raindrops. We need these pauses. And that's when the default mode network goes to work. So that's when you mind wander, you daydream, you connect the dots, you create patterns, you, you sort of make these decisions about what you think is beautiful, what you like and you don't like. And that's, the, that's this, this time where you are really having that internal dialogue with yourself. When you're improving, you are in another state, literally another state of mind. Um, and when you're in your in, in when you really are in that default mode network, you're really in an internal dialogue with you, with your with your sense of self. Great. And we need Thank both. You. you know, we need the we need right the activity stimulation and then the pause to make those connections that make us uniquely ourselves. Right. I mean, we each have our own unique brains, just like our own fingerprints, which I didn't realize until working on this book that. You know, because we are a product of our experience, the things we've taken in. And so that happens in those moments to make those connections that are uniquely ours because of, in some cases, our upbringing or mm -hmm. um, what we respond to. Right. Oh, okay. What else? <laughs> what Do you guys have any... Um, let's see. Um... We can't do audience questions yet, but soon. Um, I think, let's go back to, oh, I know, I have a question. I think I failed the quiz at the start of the book. Mm -hmm. There's one question I didn't get. And, okay, so it, this is the, um, oh, thank you. The, okay, the, the book starts with 14 questions that are part of the aesthetic mindset quiz. And, um, or, Area, aesthetic responsiveness assessment. Question number four. Okay, I just need some, I need some clarification on this. Okay. I am, in, the question is, I am impressed, and you answer one, never, five, very often. It's, it's determining your, art, your aesthetic mindset currently in your life. And um, it says, I am impressed by symmetry in artistic works. I need more information on that. What, like, I'm impressed or like, 
Yeah, Susan, you want to explain that? I don't one? get yeah. it. I think I think um, so. This survey um, we worked with um, Ed Vessel, who was at Max Planck um, at, with the Center for um, Neuroaesthetics. And he's been really one of the leaders in really studying this idea around default mode network. And so in some ways, some of these questions really get at how you perceive where you are in thinking about arts and aesthetic experiences. So I think impressed is a word that really is, it, you're moved by it, you think it's important. Um, and symmetry, you know, as a painter, you know symmetry is really about balance. So how important is balance to you in, in that context? Um, and and what, how does that rank for you? A little bit, a, not so much, a whole lot. Could that also apply to photography if you're looking oh, at photography? Oh, for sure, for okay. sure. You know, Any we visual. put the quiz at the beginning of the book because the idea was to kind of take stock of where you are, yeah. read the book, and then hopefully you're moved to um, never see your life in the same way. But to pay, even if you just start paying attention to aesthetics, yeah. you know, you don't have to go to a museum or pick up clay. But the idea is then it's maybe a month later, take the test again and just see whether there's a new awareness. Uh, oh, there's, the there's so much awareness in this book. <laughs> by the time, by the time, actually, you should do like some sort of MRI, functional F fMRI <laughs> before the book and after, because yeah. I, I mean, it really opens you up. And I mean, I got to say, looking at the questions in the quiz, I felt like, well, I feel like I have a right now. Like I, I, this is a, yes, you can go do these things. Yep. It's not, I mean, I've done them anyway, because it's for me personally, it's what I've wanted to do. But now I feel like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, we've gotten, it's been phenomenal because we, we did this out of passion because we believe the information needs to get out there. We had no idea that what would happen, but we are getting the most beautiful, rewarding things are the notes from people that say, you've given me permission to make art again. Um, you've changed my life. There are people there creating a movement, challenging each other with uh, having art date night, and let's go to dinner and then come back and let's try a new art practice we've never done together. Um, there's a Educators great using arts in school in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, social workers, public health people, neurologists, you know, thinking about how this changes every aspect of our lives has been extraordinary. We, we get emails every day yeah. from people who are sharing yeah. their stories about how the arts yeah. really have changed them or are changing them now. And there's people who are telling us their whole, thank you, you have validated what we're doing, like right. a nonprofit, a beautiful organization that pairs artists up with children and been diagnosed with cancer that do art with the child and the family throughout their entire process. And she said, this book is, I'm going to be able to get more funding because of it. You know, so mm. that's what makes us super happy wow. is knowing that we've given people a tool to um, take what they have felt in their heart and soul works and now justify it. And, and I have to add just on the advocacy side of things through this lens of the neuro arts blueprint, which is really building a field, a brand new field where all of this work comes together, is there's very little funding for arts research or arts practitioners who are doing this amazing work. So, you know, the army of artists and arts practitioners and people that are using this work 
are not um, well compensated. Their careers often are not hugely sustainable, but they persevere. And the more we have funding for research in this area, more funding for research in this area, the more this will really advance um, for all the issues and intractable problems that we really are facing as a, as a world. And so I think it's really important that this work you know, we've shown a lot of amazing work, and there's so much great work in the pipeline. But, you know, it takes, it takes 15 years for a drug to come to market, if you're lucky. Arts, and the, one of the other reasons that we decided to do this book, was arts are accessible, affordable, and immediate. And that they can be something that you don't have to wait 15 years for. Mm -hmm. It's actually also incredibly empowering. And, and I think that was another real catalyst in bringing this out when we, we did. And as Ivy said, the timing just was so ironic. Um, but it's really something that we all can begin to use today, right now. <sighs> this is so good. Okay, um, let's get okay, out of our paintbrushes. <laughs> all right, you guys. Or your pen, you can doodle. <laughs> okay, we are. We have a little over 15 minutes left. We're going to move to the questions. Dealer's choice. I was going to say, it looks like you have a full deck. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 this is great. Really good writing, too. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, okay. It. What tools are available there for artists to measure influence of their art on the brain, of their art on the brain? And how much do you think astronauts should be how much art do you think astronauts should be surrounded in space oh i love this question who wrote this <laughs> like has anyone thought about that what no, do they, what do they I, have to look at up I there besides that. a beautiful view <laughs> well i heard that they some people created music that was taken up in a space capsule right is that right yeah but i haven't because there's an album that was created but i haven't heard we have to do that um yeah art but you want to answer the question about what tools, what tools are, are available, available I don't, for artists to measure or, um, influence on their art on the brain? So, yeah, I, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, there are, so first of all, I think um, this field uh, is so entrepreneurial and there are a lot of gadgets, technology-based um, tools that are starting to enter the market um, that are different kinds of headsets that you can um, influence, sort of think about more like uh, through um, changing alpha waves or changing brain, brain waves, change the kinds of experiences that you're having. Um, there are different kinds of uh, respiratory tools that you can use to measure lung capacity for singing if you um, have some kind of pulmonary issue or are just trying to build pulmonary health. Um, in terms of ways that you can measure your brain activities um, as sort of at, a, at home use, I can't really think of anything right now that really pops into my mind. Um, uh, you know, there are ways to look at, you know, biometrics like pulse and variable heart rate, um, body temperature, you know, things that you can get on your watch um, that help to, that you can start to sort of look at regulating um, and sort of understanding those kinds of metrics. Um, but I think it would be interesting to, 
you know, I always think about this field as sort of a, an elephant in the room. And depending upon what you're touching, meaning if you're looking at Parkinson's and dance, there's different metrics. If you're thinking about Alzheimer's and dance, or sorry, Alzheimer's and music, there's different things. If you're thinking about pain and virtual reality, there's different ways to measure impact. Um, but sort of as a general question of how would you measure as an artist, I think you'd have to think about what it is that you're measuring for. And then we could sort of back into that. And, you know, we've, um, and we've had some experiences, art experiences that you go into where it's as simple as pre and post questions, right? Um, where they ask you to, they give you a form of five attributes, you know, are you relaxed? What are you thinking about? Like just trying to take stock. And then you have this 20 minute experience that gets you out of your cognitive mind and it's, it's sound and color, let's say, or there's something called um, colors in motion where you look at... Uh, beautiful landscape images very slowly and this, it puts you in this meditative state and then you know you can ask someone afterwards how do you feel you know just asking them the at those same questions and compare the pre and post just to see if people just feel different after these experiences or after looking at these landscapes <laughs> dissolving you know slowly to music interesting i could see a headset someday where you walk, you know, you're actually like, if I could put on a headset and look at a piece of art and it's taking readings of, this is in, in lieu of having my own functional MRI, then, you know, something's. Telling. Well, there is, there, Refik Anadol, who actually is a digital, an artist that did the cover of our book. He has done some pieces with people wearing headsets where you can watch your brain controlling the image, like changing the imagery based on, um, your brain signals, wow. yeah, biofeedback. So you and the piece of art are talking to each other almost. Um, okay, so, that's that's some next level. That's yeah. very cool. <laughs> so Rafik, the the um, designer who is featured on the cover, this amazing cover. Can you talk? A, one of the questions is, can you talk a little bit about how you selected the artwork and um, and him for that? Oh, the cover. Yeah, and what um, is that? well, oh, but there's so much artwork to um, select from. But this was because we found it fascinating, and that that cover was actually made from him taking scans of thousands of people's brains, right, and um, kind of aggregating it into an algorithm of a, one common brain. You know, taking all of that information. Um, he's someone that did a piece at. MoMA in New York, where he took all of the images uh, that MoMA had and d created an algorithm of oh uh, recycling it back almost to make new images. So it was that same theory wow. with taking the brains of, I think, a thousand people of all ages. Um, and so we, I'd seen something on his website where it was a journey through this kind of common brain of, with beautiful colors and shapes. And then I reached out to him and we said, we told him about our project, we interviewed him for it. And we said, oh my God, could we just take a still shot of a moment through through what you created here? And that's what the cover is. I mean, you don't, we describe it, but you wouldn't even, we didn't, it didn't matter that it was actually scans of brains because it's just a beautiful cover. <laughs> I, it is a brain. It is a new brain of art, right? It literally speaks to the cover. Okay, I yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go into one quick story. So you guys talk in the book. You talk in the book about storytelling. The storyteller 
and the listeners, it ends, their brainwaves end up... Um, in training? In training. So when the storyteller is talking, the brain's in train. So I'm going to entrain your brains for about one minute, if you'll okay. humor me. So I, um, this, is, this is a true story I haven't told you guys yet. Okay. June 28th, I was just this last June 28th, um, I was on my way to Jacksonville, but I was in Dallas-Fort Worth um, at the airport at early afternoon, two-hour layover, on my way to Jacksonville Mayo Clinic to meet with researchers and give a talk. I left the restaurant in, in the airport where I was um, having lunch and reading your brain on art, mm. doing my homework. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got up and I walked through the airport heading to my gate. And I thought to myself, as I'm carrying this beautiful book, all of these people at a very big airport, and I'm the only one with this awesome bright book in my hand? <laughs> that just doesn't seem right. About two minutes later, I went into Starbucks near my gate, and I set my book on the counter as I pulled out my money to pay the cashier. (laughs) This young woman says to me, I've been seeing that book around a lot. I said, really? (laughs) It's a great book. Are you an artist or a musician? She said, no. Do you appreciate art and beauty, I asked. Yes, I love art, but I'm no good at it. Mm. I said, well, you don't have to be good to be an artist. You should really get this book. I think you're going to love it. I love it. That's right? fantastic. Okay, that was two minutes. All right, so yeah, let's no, That's go a perfect it. human moment, though, for her. Because that's why I, I mean people are thanking us for giving them permission to make art. Well, that's say a it's a It's medicine for your soul. Like, you cannot ignore that, and, and don't let people's judgment stop you. Exactly. And it really, when you, when you see how this is all mapped onto all of our senses, who we are and how we are. It's we are each. It, it seems like we need a new word that artist actually isn't it. It's, yeah. it's further than that. No, I know. We, we were actually talk, trying to figure really? out because, you know, artist is a loaded term somewhat. It's, um, it, we, have pre, we, have a, we already have like a set idea of what we of think what that, that is. But this is yeah. something on a different scale. Yep. You know, if you think of that word, let us know. I'll, I'll put it's some thought into and it. I mentioned this, but indigenous cultures didn't have a word for art. And, you know, it was life. I also, yeah, it was life. And life. It is life. And another thing that I think is you, you alluded to this with, you know, you don't have to be good at it. But the other side of not having to be good at it is the shame and the stigma that comes when someone gets shut down because of their they share something that they've made that they've expressed themselves and they're, 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 they're humiliated in some way. And I think that's something that, you know, that, that happens so fast. It happens to kids really fast, but it happens to adults too, where you just stop sharing. And I think that's another thing that that's really important in this is that if we can't express ourselves in safe ways, and you know, I, I say this all the time, safety is not just the absence of danger. It's a place where you feel like you can share yourself. Um, that also limits our potential. And so you can see it in so many different ways, the way we, we, we hold ourselves back just a little bit because we don't want to put ourselves too far out. Um, and I think this work in terms of arts and aesthetics really allows for us to be to be sharing ourselves and feeling good about that. Yeah, Sir Ken Robinson did this experiment. He went to nursery school. Who's an artist? All the kids go up. Kindergarten, who's an artist? 
75% of the hands are up. By the time he got to fourth grade, no hands were up because oh. um, what had happened is some teacher along the way or parents said, that's not the way you draw that, that's not the way you make that, and that is the problem. I still have a resentment after a, about a teacher in my um, art college, a big one. <laughs> I'm just saying. And actually, my hist art history, like, there's a couple. <laughs> but um, I didn't let that stop me. <laughs> but I do. But it, but it is interesting. Actually, I did let it stop me mm. from sketching. Yeah. See, he was it like, you're, to all you're, of us. you're just no good. Yeah. It's but, like, wow. I, it doesn't. Anyway, plug for teach. Plug for good teachers. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of leads to this question: How does childhood? emotionally abusive environments impact these parts of the brain and responses to art? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of times we talk about um, deficit models and, um, you know, what adverse childhood influences can, can do to um, child development. But we also know that there's a real generative quality to all of this work that is re that we can reverse a lot of that kind of damage, and so um, I think that's that's the miracle of neuroplasticity too is that these things can shift. And you know, a lot of times when I do when I'm when I'm thinking through some of this is go back to the the very basic developmental milestones that children go through those critical periods where. You know, they're learning to explore the world. Um, they're learning to discover, they're seeing their fingers for the first time. I have a two-month-old granddaughter, and I'm fascinated with how all of these things come online. Um, and sometimes they get shut down. They get stunted because of um, adverse childhood um, influence. But what we know is when those new conditions are created for children to explore, to use their hands, to get messy, to use clay, to draw, those same um, developmental skills can be relearned and, and or learned for the first time. And so I think the, the, the message here is it's never too late. And, it's, and that's where you can have therapeutic arts and you can have art therapy. And for all of these different modalities, um, being very targeted on what problems you're trying to solve for based on those kinds of adverse influences can really change. And so I, I think that's a really important message is that it can, it does and can change and it's never too late. And when there is trauma, right, and the BRCA region shuts down and there are no words, and we, we spoke to someone who's working with kids in the Ukraine, um, they couldn't sense. speak about any of their trauma, but it was in their bones. Mm -hmm. And then she took them to the drawing corner and gave them crayons, and all of a sudden the story was all there in the drawing, and then she could have conversations with these kids. But when there are no words for things, mm -hmm. sometimes these other modes of self-expression will enable uh, the stories to come out that are important, can because if we just keep suppressing the trauma, right. that's what makes us ill. Right. That's what I was going to add is that it's the releasing of that content that gets trapped that can come out through these um, often nonverbal ways. And, and this is where words really do fail us and where these, these physiological ways of exp expressing ourselves, creative expression, are the ways that get us to that deep emotional 
content that needs to come up and needs to come out. And we've seen it with children, but we've also seen it with military um, who are either veterans or um, active military who have had significant trauma or, or first responders who, by bringing up this content and being able to release it, have lightened their cognitive load and also um, feel um, lower cortisol, but also um, really are able to function and release some of this content that's just so held within there, as Ivy said, within their, within their bodies. Well, we learned that from a study, if you have a secret just by writing it down, not telling anyone, but literally writing it down, then you could throw it away, it, it lightens your cognitive load, like just wow. bringing it forward. Wow. And there was another in the in the book we interview a woman who started a uh, nonprofit called Art to Ashes where she was taking frontline firemen coming out of blazing fires who would go home to their families and admit that they would act out their trauma and instead she would give them a paintbrush and have them immediately start to paint and it didn't matter just put on canvas and um it changed their lives i mean they now are going from firehouse to firehouse, teaching the firemen how to use the arts to express themselves, to make sure that that trauma doesn't stay in their body and they don't take that home to their families. Amazing. And they don't th see it as therapy, they see it as a practice. They see it as yeah. just a, a healthy well-being practice. So all of this work doesn't have to be medicalized and seen as something that you do because there's something you know, wrong, it's that trauma is disruptive. Um, these kinds of intense experiences should make us very upset. But how do you move through that? How you know resiliency is really about the ability to recover. And so these experiences in this case really help us recover, be more agile, and be able to bounce back to be able to continue to meet the 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 things that we meet along the road in our lives. Okay. The clock says zero at five. I should have five <laughs> minutes ago said we have five minutes left. It's zero. So I'm deciding what to do. Um, I think there are so many good questions. I will be giving, handing these to you just so you have. They're, they're amazing. I wish we could have gotten to all of them. I think the last thing maybe is for you two to just let us know out of curiosity, what's next? What's next for you with this book? It sounds like it's taking off. It's, it's, it is the beginning of a movement. What what's next? What are you doing tomorrow? Yeah, well, we we had no. <laughs> I'm going to work, but I mean, no. It is as I was saying behind the scenes in the green room. We had no idea the movement that we started, and in fact, I think the book is being given to Congress for all the congressmen okay. to read. I mean, it is it is you know. So we are going to work on how to at every level, you know, education, government. Um, how do we keep this going? I mean, how do we get the word out? How do we help people? Um, because I think it's really important, like Susan said, these are things that don't cost money, they're accessible, um, and that we need to be doing more of it. And so Susan and I are committed we're, we're, uh, to, now that we ignited this, to keep, keep it going. Because the letters we get and the notes we get and people who are saying, I want to join the movement. You know, what can I do? So we're, we are going to take that seriously and kind of maybe write an operating manual for humanity for the future. Who knows? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, go ahead, Susan, please. Oh, I was just going to say that, um, you know, we've all seen 
um, movements before, right? And I think I'm a little more pragmatic in in the sense that I think that there are people all over the world that are using arts every day. And what at the end of the day, I think we really need this to be sustainable. And, and really there needs to be the kind of policy and funding and support for the artist, for the researcher, for all of these amazing programs that people are doing extraordinary work. And so I, I think it's really, it really will require, um, you know, the literally millions of people that are already committed to this um, and the millions more that see the value of it. And so it's, it's a really exciting time. Um, I, you know, I was really involved in arts and education you know, in the 80s and 90s. And I think we really saw some lessons about how those that movement has not worked. And I think we have to make it work this time because we're in a very different place in society. Mm -hmm. So I think we're, it's, a, it's a really exciting time. And I think there's a lot of responsibility too to make sure that we make this work. And we're hoping just like science finally got through to us that we need to sleep eight hours a day. We need to exercise 30 minutes a day. Science is now telling us we need to make do some art activity or be the beholder of art like 20 to 30 minutes a day. And there's some statistic that, what, Susan, 45 minutes a month. You, you live 10 years you'll longer? You live 10 years longer. Yeah, if that's not <laughs> enough, what is, right? <laughs> that's great. Okay, we have to wrap it there. Um, I, our very, very special thanks to Susan Magsimon and Ivy Ross authors of Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us, for joining you. us today. We encourage thank you to pick up, yeah, let's give her, can we give her, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. We encourage you here to, to pick up a copy of Your Brain on Art here or at your local bookstore. And for more information about the book, you can go to Your Brain on Art, art Your Brain on Art, <laughs> YourBrainOnArt.com. And if you would like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person in -person programming possible, please visit their website, CommonwealthClub.org. I'm Susan Schneider Williams. Thank you and good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.